Hello, and welcome to Die, Die, Diet Black. Diet Black. Diet Black. Black number one. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so this is episode three. We made it to three. I feel like that's an accomplishment. We can stop now. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> oh, we're totally not going to stop. No, there. this is great. This is, but three is a magical number. Three is alone. <laughs> no. <laughs> three is a polyamorous number if you wanted to. <laughs> okay. Fuck. All right. All right. So, um, basically, like, from our first episode, so we each did a story. So with episodes two and three, we both did a story of two, Tam did hers, and three, I did research on mine. Basically, we were going to do them both in one night, and it was way too much information and way too heavy. So we decided to split these up into two separate episodes. Um, But like the sadists that we are, we're doing like, or the masochists that we are. There we go. That's a better word for it. I don't know. I mean, are we torturing them or are we torturing ourselves? Uh, We might be torturing both. So we're swingers. We switch. We switch. No, we're swingers. (laughs) Oh, God, no. There's so much coming out tonight. Um, That's not even true. But hey, whatever you guys are into, wink, wink. I don't know what I'm getting at. My point being (laughs) is that we figured that instead of doing two heavy episodes in one episode, we'd split it into two. So tonight he gets the hot dish heavy Midwestern um, entree and I get to... Oh, you have that hot dish. (laughs) And I get to do the palate cleanser. So It warms your bones or not. All right. So... Um, being new to the Chicago area, there was some um, recent uh, newscasts. Um, I believe it was in March. That sounds about right. Let me check my notes. Um, yes. So in March, there was this big um, thing on the news about um, this killer, convicted killer, who was being released. Yes. And people were pissed off and. They delayed his release because he couldn't find um, a stable place to live, which well, is... Well, nobody wanted him in their neighborhood. Right. Go <laughs> figure. But that was part of his parole, is he had to find a place to live. So, essentially, his plan was to live with his brothers, who live in an apartment outside of the city. Uh, but the landlord made it pretty clear that he was not welcome living with them. So he ended up finding a place to live at a church, which I will probably go over later in the episode. Um, so I picked a lot of my information from uh, a lot of stuff by the Chicago Tribune, but also from a lot of uh, documentaries that I found. Um, so, which is weird because I've never heard of this group. So basically. Tonight, we are talking about the Chicago River Crew. Which, I mean, even growing up here, it was a vague notion that I had heard of it before. I had no idea who they were. I didn't know if it was a gang, if it was something that... Well, let's just say that I had no clue until this guy was released what they were all about. And wow. Yeah, once you you find out, like, about the stories, you're like, no wonder nobody fucking wanted him to go anywhere. 
So um, <clears throat> we're going to start it off. I've got a bunch of notes and stuff, so you might hear some paper shuffling, and I've got some chicken hand scratch to kind of um, go over the story and give it the best justice that I can. Um, unfortunately, the one thing that I did find were some inconsistencies and in some of the minor facts in the story. Um, so that was a little upsetting, but I think... You know, unfortunately, this story peaked at the very beginning of the Satanic Panic. And, you know, we're going to get into that later. I mean, when I was a kid, I was reading books about, you know, Satanists in America. It was the 80s. That's what the huge thing was. And, you know, it's come to light since then that most of that was bullshit and just excuses that people were pinning on other people because they didn't like what they were doing. Um, but in this case, um, it seems to have some validity. Yeah. So, so what I want to do is instead of having this like pre-written up thing is I started doing that, but I wanted it to be more of me discussing the facts, um, in the case. So, uh, before we get started, it's very important that you know that we are a podcast um, and um, everything that we say is a matter of opinion. Uh, we're not scholars. We're not lawyers. Um, everything that I get based on the cases and the, the TAM gets based on the cases are all a matter of opinion, and they're things that we've gotten on the internet. Oh, just in case we haven't mentioned, that's Liam. I'm TAM. Yeah. We should probably say that. Um, but hi. Um, carry on. <laughs> and the meowing in the background is our one of our four house cats um so i will get started what i've kind of pre-written and i'm just gonna go into my chicken scratch and see how this goes um but i can tell you that i had to hear this case um in documentaries and read the facts numerous times to really be able to stomach it just to talk about so I will warn you that it has lots of suggestive themes, language, and acts that might be triggers or offensive. Um, these include things like abduction, rape, mutilation. This is a pretty fucking heavy case. Like, yeah, this I, is... I mean, I don't always mean to drop an F-bomb, but this is some heavy shit. Yeah, and you didn't drop an F-bomb. <clears throat> I said pretty fucking heavy shit, though. There you go. <laughs> There's the phone. But, yeah, I mean, the point is, we are bringing you guys stories, and a lot of them are going to be heavy, not all of them, but when we do, it's because we think these stories need to be brought to light, and not because we want to revel in the gory details. Um it's kind of like a reminder of our own humanity. Like, this case definitely, like, reminded me of my own humanity. Yeah, and I think that's important for all of us. Yeah. So, so basically, it's about the Chicago Ripper crew. So, the Chicago Ripper crew held the city of Chicago and its suburbs in a grip of sheer terror for nearly two years, resulting in what could be close to 17 victims, if not more. Oof. So, yeah. yeah, so their shocking crimes are still considered to be the most brutal in the history of the Midwest. Now, if you know your crimes, like we, we do. We are serial killer, like, mecca here. We are right smack in the middle of the 
Wisconsin, Chicago, like... Yeah, so putting the acts of Gacy, Dahmer, and Gein to shame. Which, oof, yeah, that's harsh. And the fact that I haven't even heard of these until I got here is, like, insane. Because those three men did some pretty atrocious things. Like, Gein being, like, the influence uh, to fucking, what, uh, Psycho and uh, Leatherface... And these guys, you know, like make them look like puppy dogs. Yeah. And that's fucking frightening. So, so they had crime scenes that were so horrific that they turned the stomachs of even the most seasoned police officers here in the city and in the outlying suburbs. Rough. So, basically, what a lot of things said is. The problem is, is within the two years, what really held the city at the grips is it didn't matter who you were, what race you were, where you lived, what you did, where you came from, you were a possible victim. If they saw you and pinned you, you were done. And that's terrifying. I mean, most serial killers, you know, they have a signature type, you know? They all, you know, have a victim profile that you can usually use that to go back to the killer themselves. It's a reflection on something in their their past. But when it's just anybody on the street, how terrifying is that? I mean, really. Yeah, your mother, your daughter, your sister, your aunt, your grandmother anybody could be a victim to these guys because they were vic they were killers of opportunity not necessarily motivation it was okay well it's a woman it's in the vicinity i'm going to kill them Ugh, i don't and, like it yeah so it all began on june 1st of 1981 okay so police received a phone call uh from the briar rabbit motel in Villa Park, Illinois, which is a, a suburb 25 miles outside of the city. Um, because they said that there was a weird smell. Oh, never a good start. No. <clears throat> so when police arrived, um, which actually one of the first few people on the scene was Peter Siegman. He was the coroner of uh, DuPage County. Okay. So they uh, found the body uh, lying in a field next to the hotel. Uh, she was face down. Okay. She only had on a, like, I believe it was a sweater mm -hmm. and no pants. Mm. And her panties were down around her ankles. Oh, dear. It's just not getting better, is it? Yeah. And her hands were behind her back, um, bound in a. What they said was an expensive pair of nickel handcuffs. Oh, okay. <clears throat> um, so one other thing that they did note, which I believe is important to the case, is that she had money in her sock. So with that, they felt that she might be linked to the Chicago area as a working girl. Hmm. Because working girls were known to carry money in their socks. Again, targeting the sex workers. Mm -hmm. Not fair, but obviously people who meet strangers 
in secluded places. So according to <clears throat> the timeline that I've acquired, um, her she was initially so the body was in such a decomposed state when they found her that they assumed that she had been there for a very long period of time. But <clears throat> that was because of all of the wounds on her body. So basically, as fucked up as it is, when they gauge the um, time of death based on an older body, it has a lot to do with how the insects enter the body. So insects tend to enter during into any open orifices. Correct. So this particular body, the insects entered much quicker because there were much more open wounds. Ugh. So she had multiple stab wounds all over the top half of her body. And most significantly, her breasts were removed. Like completely? Yeah. Ugh. So they entered through the stab wounds and the open wounds on her body. So the first feared for, um, victim um, was Linda Sutton. Okay. So they basically uh, say that her disappearance was on May 23rd of 1981. Okay. Um, she was a 26-year-old mother of two, and she was abducted near Wrigley Field. Oh, that's not even close to Villa Park. No. And her mutilated body was found a week later on June 1st outside the motel known as Villa Park. Um, and she is believed to be the first victim of the Ripper crew. Um, but it's just awful. But she was identified three days later when they did the autopsy. Um, so... When this happened and they realized that she had money in her sock, uh, DuPage County gave the city of Chicago a call. Okay. And they're like, hey, we might have a victim that could be linked to you guys. So the detective in DuPage was talking to a detective in Chicago and they're like, you know, the Chicago detective's like, hey, that sounds like it could be one of our girls, but we're not sure. So... There was really no way at the current time to link her to the city. Um, and then... I mean, props to them for at least talking to each other. Yeah. So DuPage County did a really significant investigation. Okay. But unfortunately, it didn't turn up any solid leads. And after multiple dead ends, the case went cold. Okay. Okay. Um, and then nothing really turned up till almost a year later. Okay. So we've got an entire year of no activity, supposedly. And um, one year later in Elmhurst, Illinois, uh, the police received a call at 9 a.m. Uh, for a disappearance of a 21-year-old um, named Lorraine Ann Borowski, known as Lori. Um so basically, she was abducted out, out front of the real estate office where she worked. Um, when they first approached the building, people noticed that the door was locked and she was extremely dependable. Okay. So they're like, okay, this is weird. Um, and then they noticed that they found like um, some cosmetic things um, and 
keys mm. and then shoes oh. in the parking lot outside of the real estate office. Yeah, that's not a good sign. No. I'm going to uh, say that a lot, aren't I? You are. Um, so the investigation uh, for her disappearance started immediately. Like, her parents were on it. Okay. Good. So they were like up everybody's ass they were contacting all of her friends walking the streets handing out flyers um they even went to her apartment and noticed that nothing appeared out of place so her mother was like that's just weird um there was even a point when her mother was during the search talked about how she would carry a white sheet with her because she wanted to cover her body if she found her. Mm. Like, she just... Her mom just had that instinct. That's that, morbid, but... Wow. Yeah, so on May 15th of 1982, um, she was supposedly kidnapped. Um, and, you know, her... <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. You're fucking it up. I'm sorry! Okay, and then the weird part of the case, right, after this, which I thought was totally weird, um, was one of the detectives on the case. He was uh, Detective Commander John Miller. He was um, he was a certified um, investigative hypnotist. Okay. So because they weren't getting any leads, he decided to hypnotize some of the witnesses to see if he could get more information out of them that they were kind of hiding so one of the witnesses described seeing a red van in the mall parking lot okay so she was abducted from the mall i'm surprised that hypnotism was used on witnesses at the time in like, the 80s yeah yeah i mean i know like these days they don't do that but yeah like... that was that was very weird so tips came stringing in mm -hmm. um but seemed to go nowhere and the case began to grow cold. Um, so a few months later, on June 13th of 1982, there was a 23-year-old woman who survived an attack on Chicago's north side, um, in which her... Um, so this is where it gets kind of... So, the woman is basically um, left in, um, I can't remember whether it was an alley or, um, but during the time frame between when they found her, mm -hmm. they found her and between Lori's disappearance, um, within the next four months, several women are found um, in the Chicago and surrounding suburbs, um, where their valuables were left behind and the bodies were violated in cruel, what they called ritualistic ways, um, either hacked with axes or their faces were brutally beaten. Um, and in every single case though, the common denominator was that their breasts had been slashed or removed. Ouch. And in most cases, they said it was post-mortem. Oh, so they're killing them and then... No, the oh, post... pre-mortem. Pre-mortem, yeah. I don't know why they said it that way, but it was... While they were still alive, they were removing oh, their breasts. God. I'm holding mine for dear life right now. 
Yeah, so it was it was god awful, and they were found in either alleys or under bridges or in forest preserves in the surrounding areas. Um. So, god awful. Um. So. How many women do you know? They they say it's up to seventeen. But it, it's just awful. Um, there's a list of victims and like their possible dates. Um, but let me see. Where's this one? Okay, so in June 13th of 1982, so the police have no leads. Right. Okay, until um, the Chicago prostitute oh, is left for dead. And she has similar wounds to linda sutton's okay um she ends up being picked up and she's in critical condition um but she manages to use signals and a piece of paper and pen to describe the man that uh, that abducted and hurt her and what happened um Good for her yeah so basically she said that he forced her um, so he got her in her van and he was talking to him and, and he forced her, she got her, he got her into the back of the van and forced her to take pills. And then he took what she described as piano wire and it tightened it around her breasts until she passed out. Oh. And then the next thing she knew she was in, she woke up in the hospital. Christ. Um, and then she also provided some details about the vehicle, though, which was super important in the case. Okay. Okay. So she described a red van. Yep. That was o- older. Okay. It had a plywood partition between the front and the back. Okay. And um, in hanging in the rear rear mirror was a roach clip that had uh, two long feathers, one blue and one white. Those were so popular back then. Yep. So police. I didn't even know what a, I. I just want to say that back then I was yes I was alive in the early eighties. I'm old, again aging, but um, I remember when I was a kid and those were very popular at like fairs and stuff and you could win them, and I just thought they were hair clips. I had no idea what a roach clip was and I wanted to wear feathers in my hair because <laughs> they were really like you know the thing and. Many, many years later, somebody was like, you know, that was a roach clip, right? And I was like, oh, what? And then I found out, and now I'm like, woohoo, I was wearing drug paraphernalia as jewelry. So, <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. I just... So, police immediately put out an APB on the van. Yeah. Okay. So, after they put out the APB, five days later, Lori's body, uh, Lori Borowski, her body is found decomposed on October 10th, 1982 in Clarendon Hills Cemetery. This is the one that went missing from the... Elmhurst. From Elmhurst, okay. Yeah. yeah. So our poor real estate lady. Yeah. So and it happened to be one of the hundreds of locations that her parents searched. Like, her mom was like, I was 10 feet from her body. And oh, God, her. that's heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, Police realized um, that there was no clear type of the victims. Um, And then 10 days later, Chicago PD 
spots an older red van with a partition and the feathers. Oh. So they're like, what the fuck? This doesn't happen. So they immediately pull it over. God, yeah. And the driver is 21-year-old Edward Spritzer. And he tells the police, shakenly, that the van belongs to his boss, Robin Gant. Okay. Robin Gant. And who is a local carpenter and electrician. And by the way, of some of my research, apparently he worked for fucking John Wayne Gacy. Oh, of course he did. Yeah, I mean, contractor. Supposedly at some point, yeah. So police, what they did is they went to Robin's house and they waited for him to come outside. And they're like, okay, let's see if he fits the description because the prostitute that was in critical condition like gave a very detailed description so he comes outside and they're like holy shit he matches the description perfectly oh okay we're on to something right so they bring him out and they bring him in for questioning so the entire time that they're talking to him about you know the prostitute being abducted and abused he remained super cool and calm and he's like i don't know anything about this and they're like okay so they wanted to give they wanted to put him in a lineup right but because the woman was still in critical condition they actually had to bring him to her oh that's scary yeah so they brought a physical lineup to her in the hospital and when she pointed him out, she was so frightened, she ended up collapsing from fear oh, after she pointed oh him out. Oh, God. Poor woman. <clears throat> so, so they, yeah, they brought him to her, and she picked him out without hesitation, though. She's like, no, that's a fucking piece of shit that hurt me. Um, and then he was booked on several charges, um, including aggravated battery and a deviant sexual assault. So... Robin was like a twenty or eight year old married father of like two or three or whatever. Um, but after this happened, he ended up posting bond mm -hmm. because they didn't have enough to keep him. Right. And he immediately disappeared. Of course he did. Yeah. So days later, um another prostitute actually came forward and said that he attacked her as well. Oh. Right. Um, and then, so Chicago PD issued a warrant for his arrest, and basically what they did is they're like, okay, there's no way he did this alone. Okay. So they decided to go back and question his employee that was in the van when they initially pulled him over. Um, because they're like, oh, he's too jumpy. There's something's up. There's right. something wrong with this kid. Always go for the weakest link. Somebody's yeah. going to talk. So they basically, what they did with him is they conducted a series of intense interviews. And um, what he revealed is so much darker and more sinister than the police ever imagined. Wow. I mean, this is where it gets heavy. So if you need a minute to like collect yourself, go ahead and do that because shit's going to get heavy. So... So five women across the Chicago area turned up dead. Okay. Yeah. So when Eddie Spritzer was talked to, he opened up talking about cases and he was giving details like immediately, like just random cases. He described a bizarre ritual where he and Gant, they picked up the women, stabbed them, and then Gant removed their breasts 
and according to Eddie, he would Robin would then have sex with the wound on the woman's chest. Oh, gross. And then afterwards, the breasts were used in ceremonies. So in Robin's attic, they would take them upstairs and they would all kneel around a table. And then Robin would chant some sort of like satanic type verses, right? And then they would masturbate into the breasts, cut the breasts into pieces and eat it. Oh, fuck me. Excuse me. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's not cool. Like, I don't think you heard all these details. No, the no, case. I no, have it's not. It's really bad. This is why I had to listen to it a couple times because it's fucked. Oh, gross. I've got the heebie-jeebies. <clears throat> yeah. So Eddie actually admitted to the murders, including that of uh, Lorraine Borowski. Um, and then he insinuated that there was another person involved. Um, so Andy Kowalski, um, he told the detectives that men had intercourse, that they then had intercourse with the stab wounds. So it's just like all over the place, right? So I feel like it was a total power trip for Ken, right? Right. So he's just got these this guy who he can just manipulate, and he's like, I want to do these terrible things, and you're going to help me do it. Unfortunately, that's the case in a lot of these group murders is that there's one stronger person and he's not only getting off on the killing, but he's getting off on the manipulation of his mm-hmm. henchmen, as it were. Yeah, like apparently like it was like obsessed with Satanism and like secret rituals. Like, he had, uh, apparently there was a neighbor of his who said that he enjoyed reading books on, like, um, ancient torture practices Mm -hmm. of, like, ancient cultures. And he would talk about how, like, they would cut off their breasts and use them as tobacco patches. God damn. Pouches. I'm sorry, pouches. And then he actually, so during the investigations, there was one of his ex-girlfriends who came forward. That's Fu, by the way. Yeah, who came forward and she said that he used to threaten her because he wanted her to cut off her nipple. And he said, if you don't do it, someone else will. Well, no, there's no reason for that. Nobody's going to go around cutting off nipples. I mean, yeah, no. So the investigators from DuPage, they decided to get more info on Andy. Okay. Krowski. So they interviewed his brother, Thomas who quickly implicated himself as an accomplice and admitted that he was part of the torture, rape, and murder of Laurie Borowski. Okay, so now we've got, what, four guys? Yeah. Okay. Right. So basically, he told the police what happened. So he corroborated with the stories of the rituals and the breast removal um, and said that was all Robin's idea and that Robin had special powers. Of course he did. Yeah. So Tommy pled guilty, and Andy was charged and executed in 1999. So Andy was the younger guy. No, Andy was the first brother, the first one who was, so the first brother who was implicated. So after Eddie was talked to, he implicated Andy. Okay. So Andrew um, Korowski, Corrales, who was 35, and on March 17th of 1999, he was executed by chemical injection. Okay. And he was actually the last inmate in the state of Illinois to be injected, be 
executed. I was going to say, because we have a mor- moratorium on it. Mm-hmm. So he was our last one, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't advocate the death penalty, but I guess if you're going to go out, go out with somebody who's a real piece of shit. Yeah. And then, um, so where the case goes from here is on January 11th of 2003, um, and one of his final acts in office, uh, then Governor George Ryan... He, yeah, one he, of the many to go to jail. Go yeah, he, he cleared out <laughs> Illinois' death, death row. Yep. Um, commuting to life terms the sentences of all the state's condemned inmates. This included Spritzer. Yep. Who is now serving a life term without the possibility of parole. So that was Eddie, who was pulled over. And then in September 29th of 2017... Uh, state prison officials uh, kept Thomas Kurowski in custody for his mandatory supervised parole period. Okay. Due to his inability to find a housing. Right. Cause, which we talked about this. Right. So nobody that. wants that piece of shit living next to them. No. And so they held him, they can hold him up to 17 months. So on March 29th, 2019, at the age of 58, Thomas Corrales is, was released from prison and transported from the facility in the west of central Illinois to an undisclosed location. I have that disclosed location. Which oh, is, we're going to disclose it. Which is in Aurora, Illinois. I still remember that because people were fucking pissed that this guy was in their neighborhood. And I just, I got to find it. So you got to give me one second because there's Well, Aurora, so... Illinois, you know, it's not just where Wayne's World was taking place. No, like We've Aurora's got... got a lot of shit going on. And they're trying to like be this like closed community and that's cool and all. But um, he basically went to a religious place. Um, but so basically, and now that he's out, I can't find it. But now that he's out, yeah. he's like pleading his innocence. He's like, I didn't do that. Police coerced me to say all this stuff. Like they fed me information. Foo, I know. Um, <laughs> but the police reaction is he was too stupid to remember all this shit. Okay. So he says that he was so high and so fucked up on drugs, he would have said anything that they told him to. So basically, I mean, for any of you who've seen the Making a Murderer series on Netflix, it's the Brandon Dorsey um, innocence plea. Yeah. Like, the kid is just too mentally challenged and not smart enough to have done all this on his own and he either got talked into it by somebody who was way smarter than he was and manipulated into it or he never did it and just accepted what the police told him so that he would not be like talked to any further yeah so i want to go through the timeline that i got um from the chicago tribune so you can kind of understand the whole two years that they kept them on on um, so, of course, it was May 23rd, 1981, when it started with Linda Sutton. Okay. Um, and then May 15th, 1982 is when things got to the height with Lorraine Borowski. And then May 29th, 1982, Shu Mack, who was 30 of Lombard, she disappeared in Hanover Park. Okay. And after an argument with her brother, while the two were driving home from the family's Streamwood restaurant, um, she got out of the car and was never seen alive again. 
Um, her her body was discovered about four months later in a field in South Barrington. Wow, that's like not even close. South Barrington's where we went to that apple farm. Yeah, so it's super close. So, um, and then on June thirteenth, nineteen eighty-two, was when the twenty-three-year-old woman who survived the attack on the Chicago's north side happened. Okay. Um, then in August twenty-eighth of nineteen eighty-two, Sandra Delaware who was 18, is raped, stabbed, and strangled in Chicago. And her body was found under the Fullerton Avenue Bridge on the north branch of the Chicago River. Ooh, okay. I know where that is. Yep. And then September 8th of 1982, the body of Rose Beck Davis, a 30-year-old marketing executive from Broadview, is found in Chicago's Gold Coast neighborhood. Ooh, that's bringing it to the rich people. Yep. She had been abducted, raped, and beaten with an axe and fatally stabbed. October 6th of 1982, in a seemingly random act, Rafael Turendo, 28, is fatally shot and a male companion wounded while standing in a phone booth in Chicago. So they're saying that they might be tied to a fatal shooting. Okay. I don't know how to feel about that. Okay, because it's just like a It's dude's... totally like random motive. I think they're just tying them to, but that's uh, just a okay. personal opinion. Um, on October 6th, same day, 1982, an 18-year-old Northside woman is raped, sexually mutilated, and left dead along the railroad tracks of Chicago's Humboldt Park. Oh, she Humboldt survived. Park. And then October 20th of 1982, acting on information provided from the 18-year-old woman who survived, Chicago police stopped the motorist in a reddish-orange Dodge van that matched the description she had provided. The driver, Edward Spritzer, so this is when they pulled over Spritzer. Okay. Was on October 20th, 1982. Um, and then in no- November 7th, uh, they picked up Andrew Corrales, Corrales, 19, the Villa Park, for questioning. Um, Geck never confesses, but Spritzer and Corrales confessed to up to 17 murders. Wow. And authorities dubbed the Ripper crew a nod to the infamous Jack the Ripper, case mm-hmm. in London, uh, Gecht is accused is the accused ringleader. The men cannot recall the crimes. Many of the victims' remains were never found, which is why they say it could be more than seventeen because they killed so many they can't fucking remember. That's <clears throat> a travesty. Yeah, and then it goes to like November twelfth when Thomas was arrested. Um, so his confessions were tape recorded statements. I mean, it's just it was just a giant shit show. You know, but at least they, they they captured them and, you know, they stopped. But there was some things that I found on, like, one of the documentaries that I watched. Like, apparently there was, like, a newsreel that I watched. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about people who were, like, his neighbors, like, ex-neighbors. Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, he was a normal guy. You know, he moved in, painted the house, raked the leaves. And I'm like, I rake the leaves. But I don't kill people. I don't think there's a correlation between people who rake the leaves and people who kill yeah. people. But apparently they like moved out of their house like all of a sudden on like Halloween night. <laughs> so there was that. But I mean this this was fucked up. Like, so did Gecht ever get no, taken he, in? No, yeah, he's he's in prison. Okay. He's um he's serving a sentence to where like he's a eligible for parole when he's in his 80s because he's always proclaimed his innocence and they don't have enough to pin it correct yeah okay. so he's in there but there's a possibility that he can, i think it's in 2042 he, he's all right well at least he's safely away yeah. for a while 
So I'm going to leave you with your creepy sorbet because I've got to use the restroom. <laughs> All right. So um, Sorry. I am going to take it from here. Um, now is the appropriate time for my ice cream sound because we're going to do a little fun story. I mean, you know, there's nothing funnier than naked people doing stupid shit. So we're going to go from here and um, give you a little bit of something that could very well be a Florida man story. But in this case, it's Louisiana man. So um, police have arrested Jeffrey Falls this Saturday morning after receiving a call from a homeowner in Louisiana's Brownsville, Baucomville area. They said that a nude man was in his chicken coop and he was tearing it up. So they, they arrived on the scene. They found this man still naked and attempting to clean the chicken coop's floor with his bare hands. They spoke to the homeowner who said he did not know this man and did not want him in his chicken coop. And they went over to the chicken coop and they found the guy naked and they found plants on the porch and they went in and they found the guy who was notably still high on something. He had dilated pupils and he was acting erratic. His body was doing jerky movements. He was fucked up. <laughs> and when they interviewed him, he admitted that he had done way too much math. I mean, like, there's a point when you've done math and you're like, okay, I'm fucked up. And then there's a point where you've done so much math that you're in a guy's chicken coop. Or twerking in a cop car. <laughs> well, the thing is, he was not mad at the chicken coop. Apparently, he was upset that he was trying to talk to the door of his car. Yes, you heard that correctly. He Fuck was, that door. He was talking to the door of his car. But he got really upset because the door did not answer him back. So instead of taking out the anger on the car, because, you know, he needs his car, he took the anger out on some random dude's chicken coop. He got naked, and he fucked up that chicken coop. I mean, if he were Florida man, he probably would have gotten naked and fucked that tailpipe on that car. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Instead, he threw the chickens out of the coop, so no chickens were harmed in the making of this story. Um... But he did damage the floor of the enclosure. Can't say so, that for a John Waters film. <laughs> but, you know, at least they used the chicken fully after they fucked it. They ate it for dinner. That's in John Waters. Um, God bless that man. We'll talk about him they later. They were basing that chicken. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> this is, yes. Um, <coughs> but they did take the offending meth naked chicken coop assault man into custody and he is charged with criminal trespassing simple criminal damage to property and disturbing the peace he bail has been set at nine hundred dollars so well hopefully his mama can make that moral of the story don't do a lot of meth and go talk to your car door because it's not going to answer you don't and do then, meth well <laughs> that's the real moral of the story don't but, do meth if you do, don't go fuck up some random dude's chicken coop. And if you're going to do it, don't do it naked. Okay, wait. I got one more story. This oh. is super important. So okay. I, I heard this in the car on the way to pick you up. Today. Okay. Okay. All right. So 
This is the the true story of how running might kill you. Okay. I've always suspected as much why I don't exercise. Go on. So this woman's like jogging Mm -hmm. and she jogs through like a swarm of flies. She apparently got a parasitic larvae in her eyeball. Oh, gross. The worst thing that happened to me today was just trying to get home on the train on this on the L and my pants kept falling and I was really worried that like I was gonna be like ending up dropping trow in the middle of the blue line, but fortunately they held on and I was able to pull them up and get home without incident. <laughs> so You're a survivor. Yes, I am. I'm a survivor of droopy pants on the train. So if you listen to this entire episode, you're a survivor of episode three. That is three full episodes. And we've done some heavy shit. Hopefully for episode four, we're going to lighten it up a little bit. Do some fun stuff. You know, I mean, we're going to talk about death and shit, but it's not going to be nearly as... um. Maybe not so true crimey next time. Maybe we'll do something funnier. So um, stay creepy and cool and watch for out for red vans and... Remember to die. Die. Diet black. Yes, diet black, darlings. Have a good night. Sweet dreams.